Welcome back to Cookies for Breakfast. My name is Danny Lebrecht. You know, folks, it is no secret that I am a huge fan of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That program has lasting impact on, on my work. I'm heavily influenced by Mr. Rogers and, and his mentor, Margaret McFarland. I never got the chance to meet either of them, but I did get the chance to meet Elliot Daly. Now, you might not know who Elliot Daly is, but you should. He played such an important role in the development of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in the early years, and he influenced so many, but he really doesn't get the credit that he deserves. He's become a dear friend and a mentor over the years to me, and I am excited to introduce him to you. I hope you enjoy this program. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cookies for Breakfast. My name is Danny Lebrecht. I'm, I'm reflecting a lot on mentorship and friendship. Ships in general that seem to get us from port to port um, during hard times, during times when we're reflecting on our own mental health and, and our goals, professional goals, but just goals of what does it mean to be a, a human being and relate to other human beings in such challenging times. I, I think we desperately need to feel connected with one another and learn from those who came before us and connect with those that are coming right, right behind us and, and bridge all those gaps to show we're, we're in this together. As you know, on Cookies for Breakfast, our, our lens is children's media, where it's going. But this, I think this will be a broader sort of conversation. So a little, a little backstory on, on, on my relationship with my, my guest that I have today. In 2012, just before my, my youngest was born, I was thinking about my, my purpose. Um, I had been working on Danny Joe's Treehouse for a while, and I was still in the classroom in Chicago. And I was, I was hearing so many stories and, and having these small group discussions through play with the children that I was serving in many different classrooms in Chicago about heavy stuff, um, things that were impacting the children I was serving that was far beyond what I experienced in my own childhood. Um, children having first and secondary experiences with with regular gun violence and abuse and racism and, and just so, so many things. And I felt this pull to, to do more through the type of communication that I was offering through the screen. And I, I just didn't feel like I was there. And I had this mindset of, I, I, I see a need. I knew who I, I knew who met that need in the past. My my heroes, people like Levar Burton and Mr. Rogers and uh, Captain Kangaroo, but for me, mostly Fred Rogers. And in my mind, I thought, well, I I have to try to achieve that that level of communication. How do I even start? In hindsight, I've realized it's not about trying to be the next. It's it's much more important to be the first you instead of the next somebody else. You can be influenced by your heroes and, and take those lessons, but ultimately you're the one in this moment. And I learned that through the person that I'm having on today. I, so my child's about to be born. I can't sleep. I, I go to the Neighborhood Archive, which is a, a great blog and podcast and um, all things Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood um, created by Tim Lieberger. I'll, I'll, I'll post a link to that. And he had a podcast episode with a gentleman named Elliot Daly talking about the early days of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I had never heard of Elliot Daly before, but he played a critical um, role in the development 
of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And I don't, I don't think enough people know who, who he is. And I heard, I heard him talking about that process. And I thought, well, I, I have to reach out to this man. I, I think this person can give me some guidance. So in the middle of the night, I wrote a very long email to a complete stranger. And I sent it out. And to my surprise, he wrote back to me. And it was so authentic and kind and reassuring. And we started to have correspondence. And we talked a few times on the telephone. And we really got to know each other over the years. And he's been a touchstone for me. So I'm, I'm very happy to have him on today. We're going to talk about the history of Mr. Rogers, but just the history of, of mentorship and friendship in general, I think. So please welcome Elliot Daly. Hi, Elliot. Hi, I am so happy to be engaged with you anytime, but especially this time. I love the stuff we're going to be talking about. I love the work you're doing. I love the spirit and the brains and the heart that you bring to it. Well, thank you so much, Elliot. I, I admire you so much. Um, I'd like to start with if I understand the history correctly, you, you've done so many things. I know you've, you were a pastor and a chaplain, and you were in the business sector for a long time. And then you, you started doing reviews of children's media in the, the 60s. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I, uh, I studied a lot of psychology in all three of the degree programs that I did. And, but, but before, even while I was back in high school, um, we got our first TV when I was like 12 or 13 years old, 1950, something like that. Um, and I intuitively understood that this was going to change the world. I, I don't know how I got that. It was just a uh, intuition is always a gift. Um, and so I began writing about television and, and imagining the impact, how it was going to change our lives. And then I studied a lot of psych in, in some degree programs that I did and continued uh, my interest in that impact. But when our own children got born, I thought, wow, how different their growing up years are than mine. You know, when I was in the kindergarten, a trip to the firehouse was a big deal. Uh, and my kids were growing up with the Vietnam War being fought on a TV set in their living room, although we didn't make that their primary viewing fair, as you might imagine. Um, so I wrote a number of articles for TV Guide and Look Magazine and Family Circle and people like that, trying to, trying to help people understand what role the television experience was playing in their children and trying to help them borrow it was an uncontrolled thing, you know, I mean, just the, the television assumed because of its technological wizardry, it sort of arrogated to itself the right to be turned on. Uh, there was a wonderful researcher at NBC back in the 60s uh, who, uh, who coined the, the, the term LOP, that people tune into the LOP, the least objectionable program, i.e. the television sector is going to be on. That's not the question. The only question is what channel are we going to be watching? And so I was trying to help parents understand that maybe there were some standards and practices from parenting in the age of print that they might want to apply also to the age of TV. Um, so in the course of that, I was paying a lot of attention to children's television. And then I was fortunate enough that a a friend of mine was spending a night in a motel with his preschool children in Pittsburgh. 
and saw what was then a local program by this guy, Fred Rogers. And he said, my children were mesmerized. And, and I know that you're really fascinated by this stuff and you really ought to look into this. So I got in touch with Fred, Patty and our kids. And, and I drove out and spent the weekend with Fred and Joanne and James and John. And, and uh, I said that I wanted to understand what he was up to and, and uh, maybe write an article about him or something. And uh, he and I just kind of fell in love with each other. And shortly thereafter, he said, you know, any chance we could hook up and be, be partners. And that's kind of how I got, got connected with Fred. And, and when you say um, becoming partners, what, what was that specific role within? At that point, it was still small world. Yeah, yeah it was. It was uh, Fred uh, had a privately held company called Small World Enterprises. Uh, that through which he owned the intellectual property called Mr. Rogers Neighborhood and the musical copyrights and, and everything else. So um, the trigger for his inviting me to join him was he had been making, I think it was like just 17 programs a year or something. It was, it was a pretty small scale operation, but Sears announced that they would like to give him a, a bunch of money, a million dollars, I guess it was, to expand it. And so he said, I would love to expand it, but I would need a lot of help on both the management side and the creative side. And would you be willing to, to, to team up with me? So, so I, I became an officer of Small World Enterprises and, but realized what we really needed. And, and Fred made me a, a, a partner and owner in Small World, but I need, realized that we needed a not-for-profit organization. Um, that could be the receptacle for grants from corporations, foundations, um, et cetera, the government. So, so I created something called Family Communications Inc. to be a sister company. And then Fred and I licensed the production of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to FCI, Family Communications Inc., on a royalty-free basis. And uh, so I wore hats in both organizations. I was president of Small World and I was EVP of uh, Family Communications. And, and wearing that hat, I was the guy that had to go out and, and chase up the money. But also during the first couple of years, I wrote a number of the scripts because we went from practically you know, 20 or a year or something to 65 a year. So I was writing 20 or 25 uh, scripts a year and Fred was writing the rest of them. I, th I think so many people have heard in the past that Fred was the sole writer of all, and I know that he reviewed everything and approved everything, but um, in, in my research, I've learned that, that there were more than one writer um, collaborating with, with Fred. What, what, what would be an, an episode that folks might be familiar with or something that you're especially proud of that you, that you worked on? Uh, that's a question that makes me laugh because if you put a gun to my head and said, name one right now, or I'm gonna pull the trigger, I'd say, just go ahead and pull the trigger. And, and what I mean by that is um, we did programs uh, in blocks of five. So we would take a theme and work it for a week. It might be separation anxiety, it might be sibling rivalry, it might be fear of the dark, whatever, whatever was the, the theme. And so, so I would write, depending on, I, I would write 
five programs in which we would sort of open the issue up and work it during the week and and hopefully bring it to some comfortable resolution by the end of the week, although each program itself had to be entire unto itself. And so I would have a conversation about the theme of the week with Margaret McFarland. We'll come back to her in a second, speaking of mentors. And then the ideas for that week's program would sort of gestate and I would mull them for a while. And then typically, uh, about 4.30 in the morning, I would be awakened by the muse, say, say, okay, go deliver this now. And I would go into my study and I would write a script. And it was the most mystical experience of my life because I did not know what was going to come out until I, I read it on the paper that was scrolling up through my typewriter, you know? And, and it was a very unconscious process. Mm -hmm. And I would... <laughs> typically finish a script about 10, 10 30 in the morning um, after about five or so hours. And I would be quite ecstatic. And I would go into the kitchen, brew myself a cup of coffee. And I say, Patty, I, this, 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 this could be the greatest program in the history of Mr. Rogers neighbor. And she said, what's it's about? And I would say, oh, oh I, I I, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't remember. And I would dash back into the study and, and say, oh, it's about um, cornflake especially is going to be doing this in the neighborhood to make believe and Fred's going to be doing And it's part of the week theme. But uh, honest to God, I have occasionally seen episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and then realized at the end of it that I had written it. I, I just, I don't have, I don't have any, any capacity to retain it. It just flowed through me onto the paper, into the studio, and then it came out on the television screen. I love that. I love that process so much because it's something that I ex experience in my work for, for my own stuff and, and writing for others. And I've talked to enough people in children's media, pioneers and, and present day colleagues that talk about that, the all of the all of the prep that goes into it, all of the research and 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 thinking out ideas, and then when it's ready, it just hits, and you've gotta you've gotta sit down and start writing, and that flow that that comes through you, yeah. um, it's such a it's such a beautiful moment, and then refining it afterwards. But yeah. oh, I, I I don't know where that comes from, but I love feeling connected to it. So uh, before I forget, so you brought up um, Dr. Margaret McFarland, who I remember during one of our first conversations, you, you, you told me about her and I had never heard and I, I felt kind of embarrassed. And, and I remember you saying, well, the, the shame of it is that Dr. McFarland really doesn't get the credit yeah. that she deserves within the neighborhood of make-believe, but in general, in, in the world of early childhood development and education, she was truly a pioneer, a true leader. I, I, I would love to take a minute or two and, and introduce those of your friends on this um, cast that, that don't know her to who Mark was. Um, Margaret McFarland uh, was one of three co-founders of the Arsenal Family and Child Study Center at the University of Pittsburgh. That was a facility of the med school, really, of uh, the psychiatry department and psychology department of the University of Pittsburgh. And her two co-founders went on to somewhat greater renown than she. One of them was a guy named Eric Erickson. Uh, 
and uh, the other one was a guy named Benjamin Spock. And the three of them, uh, Margaret and Eric and Ben, founded the Arsenal Family and Child Study Center to understand the inner life of young children. And Margaret stayed on to tend the store for the rest of her life. And, and it's probably not too much to say, Eric, Erickson in fact said it, uh, nobody on the face of the planet understands the inner life of a preschool child better than Margaret McFarland. Well, by happy coincidence, Margaret was situated in Pittsburgh, as was Fred. And when Fred decided that this was what he really wanted to make his life's work, Fred, as always following his sublime uh, instincts, sought out the best people that he could learn from and turned to Margaret. And so Margaret became his mentor, tutor, guru on all things uh, of the inner life of the preschool child, for which Fred already had a monumental running head start based on his own life experiences and intuitive understandings. And so between the two of them, they, they represented and created um, what I want to say is a monumental um, foundational understanding of, of not only the inner life of the preschool child, but more importantly, in terms of who Fred became to children and families, how a non-familial adult could elicit a process through a medium of television. And so Margaret uh, was Fred's coach, guru, mentor. And fortunately, thank God, when I hooked up with Fred, mine as well, because as soon as Fred said, I'd really like if you could help me with some, you know, by writing some of the scripts of the program, I said, great, love to. Uh, I'd already been doing a lot of other kinds of writing. So uh, he said, why don't you, when you have an idea, why don't you go sit with Margaret? Let, let's just pick a subject. So I wanted to do a, a week about sibling rivalry. So I went and I made an appointment with Margaret and went up to see her at her office. And Margaret was a little bird-like woman. She couldn't have weighed 85 or 90 pounds and had a kind of a little squeaky, crackly voice. She was probably in her 60s, 70s, maybe at the time I knew her. I should, I should remember better. So I said, Margaret, I'm thinking about writing a program about sibling rivalry. And so she said, well, you know, I, I, had, I had an Aunt Eleanor who lived in Wichita. That woman, she, she lived to do laundry, you know? I mean, she just loved to, you know, put a scrub it on the scrubbing board, and then she'd like to, you know, dry it on the lines where the nice prairie breezes would flow. And, and then, uh, you know, and my Uncle Mort, you know, he had, a, he had an old jalopy. Well, I thought, wait, have I just fallen into, <laughs> what, what the hell is she talking about here? I mean, I, I had no idea where she was going with this. And she, for the next however long, it seemed an eternity, because I thought that I had, I thought really she was out of her mind. She began 
just talking about all of these seemingly random people, experiences, one thing and another. And then, and then it began to, there began to be sort of dim connections and echoes between this and that and the other thing. And then by the time she got done, I was standing inside the life of a preschool child who had just had a new baby introduced into their life that was dislodging their primacy from their parents. And I don't know how she got there, but I had such an exquisite, seemingly flawless understanding, you know, and I ran home and I wrote a week's scripts. And Margaret had, she was the most astounding teacher because she taught by creating portraits that drew you into the life circumstances of, of somebody else. And she did that for Fred and for me. And, and then some years later, uh, some other people also uh, began writing scripts for the program and, and did it for them as well. But Margaret, I refer to her as the unsung heroine of, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Nobody, nobody on the planet had a, a greater influence than Margaret on what I regard as the genius of, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Just, just hearing about that gift, the way that she painted a picture, you know, there's so many teachers that take that lecture approach of do this, think this, right, yeah. one, two, three, and then you'll end up here, do it every time. But I love I love the true educators that bring you on a journey and 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 sh you know create a safe space for you to discover the answer and and it sounds so much like what the original Mr. Rogers neighborhood format was of starting in reality, yeah. going into that dream and that abstract space in that safe space and then coming back out with with your own like what what I've always loved about that program to this day is every time I watch an episode, I get something new out of it, you know, loved it as a very young child. I love it as a middle-aged man now. I'm sure I'll love it as a, as a grandpa one day. Like I, it's, it's so personal. It's, it's, it's like a classic piece of literature. You're, you, you bring so much as the viewer, you're going on that journey. You're being allowed to go on that journey and find your own answers. Yeah, yeah. So it's really amazing to hear how that core is so reflected in, in the end result. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a moment for Margaret. I feel, I feel like more people have, are aware of her now. I've seen more articles about her, but I've always wanted to find more of her papers, which I think are next to impossible to, to find. I found one at the Fred Rogers Center. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was her and Fred on, on, on the power of puppetry. Well, and, and Max King uh, gave her her due uh, in, in his uh, official biography, The Good Neighbor, uh, his biography of Fred, and did a really nice substantive chapter about who she was and, and her role at, at the neighborhood. By the way, while, while I'm at it, I'll just take 30 seconds for this. I want to do a shout out to, to another mentor uh, that I had when, when I went there. You know, when I, I went there, I think it was 33 or 34 when, when I hooked up with Fred. And after about six months or so, I found myself as the president of this company. And the company had television and a music business and a publishing business and one thing and another. And, and it, 
you know, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And fortunately, th there was there were only three directors for Small World, Fred, me, and a magnificent man named Leland Hazard. And Leland became my mentor. And Leland taught me 95% of what I know about how to make things happen in the world. He was the general counsel of uh, PPG Industries, which made him a, a major figure in the business community in Pittsburgh. But far more than that, he was a Renaissance man who was a great art collector. He wrote for the New Yorker. He was an advisor to foreign governments. He was just a, a titan of a person. And he was also the real spark and, and spearhead for the Renaissance of Pittsburgh, which was the world's dirtiest city in the world right after World War II and and the and and bringing it up to being the, the wonderful city that it became it, it, i've been learning more and more there's always more than one one mentor one guide one yep. voice you've got a great quote on your on your website we're going to save it for the end but this feels like the moment to ask you about it um the definition of love yeah to yearn for the fulfillment of another person on their own terms. Where, where does that come from? Who's, who is that? I wish I could tell you. I, I wish I could tell you I dreamed it up myself, but I don't think I did. I'm sure I discovered it somewhere. Uh, there was a guy actually from, from Pittsburgh who won a Nobel Prize who said that the key to creativity is having a faulty memory for sources. <laughs> uh, I think that's probably one of those, but the, the moment I either heard it or how I would love to think, uh, it dreamed it up. It just it spoke deeply uh, to to my heart as well as my mind. And the, if if you want to bring me quickly to tears, just show me somebody who is getting what they deserve in the best sense of the word, you know. And and as I watch my my friends and and our children and now our grandchildren um, living life on their own very distinctive terms and saying thank you for sharing when advice is offered and then doing whatever the heck they are born to do you know it 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 makes you very uh, very short on advice and 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 uh, long on appreciation. That's good stuff, Elliot. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about parallels. I think of, of very specifically 1968 and this past year, so many similarities with social unrest and 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 you know that just striving to be heard and to be seen and and so so much um, pushback in so many ways. Um, and the power of communication at the beginning of this conversation, you were talking about seeing television and having that that intuition, that gut feeling of, oh, this is this is a powerful tool. This is, and then we talk about it on Cookies for Breakfast all the time. You can use a tool any way you want. You, you know, a, a child's first tool being a stick can be used to create or it can be used to hurt, yep. Yep. guide a little bit, but give the space for the child to discover and to um, make some choices and learn from those choices. And, well, you know, it's, it's the same thing with a passive screen or interactive screen or whatever's coming next. I can't stop thinking about 
you know, I, I was in a place of, oh, we've got interactive screens now. The people that I grew up with would pretend to talk through the screen. I can literally do that. I can actually have a back and forth. And isn't that exciting? What's going to come out of that? Um, and amazing things have come out of it, especially during a year of quarantine and remote learning and needing connection and still needing the face-to-face in-person things, you know, having that balance. But now I, I'm thinking ahead to the stuff that there's great potential, but I also find it so frightening beyond interactive screens, you know, worlds where you can enter, you know, the, the virtual through VR, you know, VR and motion capture and these concepts of metaverse. And what is that going to mean to young children? What does it mean now? What, when you think of what you and, and Fred and Margaret were thinking about with, okay, we have this responsibility, we have a way to use this, this TV screen in such a healthy way. What do you think about what, how screens are being used today? What do you think about the the future? What are you hopeful for? What are you a little nervous for? I'm just so curious to hear your perspective on all of that. It's a question that I am living. I mean, I, I'm living that question big time. I have been somewhat, but not so big time for a long time. And in fact, probably not so coincidentally, maybe ESP wise, it's, it's going to be the subject of my next blog post. So I, I welcome the opportunity to think out loud <laughs> about it. Um, so, so let me just roll back a little bit. What, 20 years ago, I suppose, when, when smartphones came along and pretty soon you couldn't see a human being that w- didn't have their face in the smartphone. And, and I would watch my grandkids spending massive amounts of their time on the smartphones. And I and I had this sort of intuitive gut level worry about it. You know, where's the interactivity? Where's the what, whatever? It, why do you have to make everything mediated when it could be actually, you know, face to face or whatever? And then I, it suddenly dawned on me as I looked at the way people work at their computers in offices these days. And when you look in an office, all you see is people at computers. And I suddenly realized, oh, no, no, they, they, are, they are in training for the life they are going to live. Almost any field they go into, unless they're going to be a concert violinist, they're going to be doing their work through some kind of a screen, which is kind of weird to think about. But I mean, even in a manufacturing facility, you know, people are running robots through screens. So... So I began to back off of my knee-jerk uh, antipathy toward seeing everybody with their nose buried in a screen. And in fact, my own screen is in my pocket and I spend you know an hour or two a day on it. But I think the thing that, that I am having the hardest time understanding is the amount of time that I see spent on on the video games i see that who was at microsoft just paid yesterday 67 billion dollars to buy the leading maker of these these video games and the analogy that i'm having the hardest time getting over is when i was 9 10 11 12 years of age we used to buy comic books 
and they were fun, Dick Tracy or Superman or Spider-Man or whatever. And then by the time you were 13 or 14, you put comic books away and you began, you know, reading real books or doing real things in, in life, you know, starting a business. I started my first business when I was 16, I think. But now it seems to me as though not kids, but the kidification of, of adults. I'd, I don't understand how or why people spend, I mean, 20, 30 year olds spend many hours a day in these unthinkably hostile uh, games, which are monumentally popular. I mean, it was, I remember 10 years ago being shocked when I realized that the revenues of the violent video game industry had in that year exceeded the revenues of, of Hollywood for movies. And I just, I just, I, I just frankly don't get it. I wonder, like, and I can only speak to my own experiences, uh, but I know, I know with young kids, you know, there's that thing where they just don't really have a whole lot of choice or power. Sometimes I have, I have a really great friend named Rachel Janini, who you would love. She's an early childhood specialist, and I recently wrote about her for my first um, op-ed in, in Ed Surge about the language of play. And she and I were talking and, and she compared the experience over the past two years for adults as a, a window into what children experience often, lack of choice, striving for independence, needing a touchstone. And I think with that violence, I think <laughs> with many adults in my age group, there's a sense of real powerlessness and play, however you're going to get it, even if it's violent play. Going back to my when, when I had my first concerns with the, the kids I was working with that had first and secondary experiences with gun violence, they would swing that stick and go bang, 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 bang. And there were so many teachers that would say, no, 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 no. We don't play that way. We don't want you to become that. But in my mind, and later I, I, I was able to prove it, in my mind, I, I thought, well, how else are they going to get it out? They, you know, all of this stuff seeps in and seeps in, and you have to have some sort of a release that's safe. Right. And maybe, and I don't know, but maybe these virtual games that are so violent, maybe it's some sort of a, a release. You know, people don't really want to, well, managing emotions on all of that, but I think most folks, human beings, really don't want to hurt one another. But, you know, there's, there's that whatever tapping into that side and trying to process it and understand those feelings and, and grow, go through something without hurting anyone, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, it's attractive in that way. And those games, I think the people that are developing those games, that same technology is going to be applied to this new type of screen interaction, that's not going to replace all the other stuff. You know, passive screens are, are still going to be around, movies, all that stuff will still be popular. But the idea of, of make-believe, of, of literally going into a land of make-believe and being one of the characters or interacting with characters yeah, right. at a very sweet, innocent level, or maybe in a more violent way, right. maybe it's just a, a way to dream and to process. Yeah, well, and, and it, it, it may be. Uh, this is a really helpful perspective you're offering. Uh, it may be that it's no different from my generation, which, I mean, we read a lot of books. 
you know, well, why do you read a book? I mean, you spend, spend hours and hours and hours reading a book. Okay, so somebody else is spending hours and hours and hours shooting down the bad guys. Um, and a lot of people, book reading is about shooting the bad guys. So, I mean, it, it, it may just be the Luddite in me that, that hasn't made, you know, that next, that next, you know, leap to that. So many different ways, right? There's more than one way to, to, to process stuff. And I did, funny enough, side note, over the past two years, we, we were already a family that read a lot, but oh my goodness, we, we've, uh, every, every night, the kids are reading with, with step, my wife, Stephanie, and Stephanie does a hundred books a year. That's her goal. And the kids are constantly reading and, and so am I. And, and that type of a process is so very, to, to me anyway, it feels very Zen, you know, it's just the physical nature of it and, and letting your mind's eye paint the picture instead of having someone else do it for you. But I also like to play a video game from time to time, if I'm honest, not the violent stuff for me, but. And I, th I think that, that I'm increasingly mindful of the fact that there are some things that just came too late in my life for me to take a taste of. I mean, I, I've always been, I guess, what the marketers would call an early adopter or something. And I like, you know, I, I like what's new and what's next. Uh, but but at, at 85, you know, I'm, I'm realizing that there are some things that came along in, in recent years that will never be part of my life. I mean, I don't need them. I, you know, I don't really have any interest in them. And and once I got a taste of Pac-Man, you know, 50 years ago, which was, I guess, about the first video game, uh, you know, I kind of moved along and I didn't revisit the later permutations of it. And and it's a little bit ironic that dear, dear, dear friends of ours here in town have four daughters of extraordinary accomplishment. And one of them is uh, at the head of the Oculus division of uh, Facebook you know, where you go into another world, I guess, with this face mask on, and I don't know what happens in that other world, but uh, I need to ask Becca more about that transition into that other world. I mean, that's the big, that's the, that's the big thing that so many people are talking about, and whether it's, you know, I think the term metaverse is the one that's thrown out the most, but, but it's definitely connected to, to that. I've lost so much personal, I've, I've lost so much trust with Facebook and Instagram and, and them pivoting to very specifically target um, younger kids. This is the last thing I wanted to talk about. This will tie it up actually really well. Um, I, I know when you were very active in, in television, there were concerns around the power of influence. If you're a talking head on the screen, whether it's the newscaster or the late night talk show host or a kid show host, and you're there consistently, you very subtly, you're, plant, you're planting these ideas. And, and it could be in the, you know, think what I tell you to think, or the join in the process of, of understanding, find your own discoveries, you know, and everything in between. There's that element, there's commercialism, there's manipulation, all of that stuff. I feel all of those things have heightened so much and have become more subtle. And yeah, the thing that freaks me out <laughs> is the idea of putting on, on the mask and going into your suit and being in these worlds that seem so real, especially for younger children, if they're exposed to it. And 
<laughs> what could that mean? There's always the fear of the, oh no, the worst, but how, you know, how do we, how do we control the stick? You know, how do we teach the, our kids how to control that, that stick? Because there's always going to be negatives. Yeah, well, one of the reasons why we have chosen to live in this town for the last 50 odd years is that there are so, so many interesting thinkers here whose brains we can pick. And, and one dear, dear friend who just died a year, a year ago, Freeman Dyson, was a physicist at the Institute for Advanced Study. And Freeman is one of these monumental thinkers. I mean, not out of the box because there is no box as far as he's concerned. And uh, I used to, we had dinner with Freeman and Emma many, many times, but I would also just go over and visit Freeman in his office and have conversations with him at the Institute for Advanced Study. And what became clear to me is that Freeman refused to recognize any boundary of any sort between the fleshy world of Elliot Daly and the mechanical world of that clock up there or that TV that's on the wall over there. And his conviction was that human beings are in our infancy in terms of the life cycle of Homo sapiens. Um, and we're only maybe five, six, seven, eight percent into the couple of million years that, that we may evolve. And that the integration of the mechanical and the biological is inevitable and is the proper. Uh, is a proper destiny for us. <laughs> I remember traveling one day uh, and I got into a hotel and the first thing I would ever do when I went into a hotel was to throw open the blinds and turn on the TV for a little bit of company. And, and Freeman was being inter interviewed by, oh, who was that good PBS uh, interviewer? I forget his name. Um, Charlie? Rose. Um, Charlie Rose. Uh, yeah, good. And so Freeman was espousing something like this and this guy said well but 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 wouldn't that make us something other than human beings and freeman said something like so what you seem to be saying is that if there is a an integration between the mechanical and and the human that comes together in the human brain that that would make someone some less than human and roses were nodding and, and, and Freeman said do you know anyone who uses a hearing aid you know and, uh, and then he goes on to say in this in this book um, future 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 something oh I wish I could remember anyhow that in in the laboratories in Bern Switzerland they already have silicon chips and brain matter that are intercommunicating. And so it's not a question of whether, but when the chips that are in my iPhone are going to be in my brain and that 17 generations down the road, you won't need to implant it anymore because the brain will have learned to grow the effect of that chip so I can think a phone call. You know, so. 
I, I love what's coming next. I, I don't pretend to understand it, but, uh, uh, and, and whatever these evolutionary phases are, will have as much potential for evil as for good. But the one thing you know is you're not gonna head them off at the pass. All you can do is to try to understand why creation was created and to be a part of healing the parts of it that get a wheel in the ditch. I, I, I was not expecting you to comment on something so far off in the future that I can't begin to wrap my mind around, but I, I'm so glad that you grounded it back into um, present, being present, or, or what does it mean to control? What does it mean to just be? I think so many of us have that sense of, yeah, lack of control and fear in so many ways. Like, what's going to happen? Where, when do we get to go back to the way it was? What's going to happen in the future? We've never, we've never had those answers, but we can, we're, we're together. We can just be and, and do our best and try to hear one, truly see and hear one another. That's, that's pretty reassuring, regardless of what the, the, the tech is. Yeah, I, I think I think that the most punishing thing for us as human beings is to feel stuck and impotent and to imagine there's nothing that we can do. Uh, Leland Hazard, my mentor, was a source of many bon mots, and one of them was, he said, well, you know, worry is nothing but an inadequate idea hovering over a center of fear. Wow. I love that. And I've brought that back to myself as a touchstone many times. Worry is an inadequate idea hovering over a center of fear. And so you can then deconstruct it and say, what's the inadequacy of the idea that I'm living with? Like I can't do something uh, or that, you know, uh, and, and what's the fear? And uh, the, my last blog piece, uh, which it was entitled, Despair is Not an Option, was about you know, there's so much despair in America right now. Uh, and it's so much of it seems to be nurtured by the doubt that there is any, anything that one can do. And once you give in to a sense of impotence, well, that's, that's a self-inflected injury. You know, we, 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 there is always something we can do, even though it sometimes means that we have to overcome a little speed bump of fear to, to get to the other side of it. That's, that's, that's the beauty of living, I suppose. It'd be pretty boring if it was just this utopian. That's right. And I'm so grateful for the work that you do day in and day out with the kids and the families that, that get to engage with you uh, because you keep nurturing their their will to thrive and their capacity to thrive and, and to, to be creative collegial members of a community. And, and uh, there are not many people who are doing that grace filled work that you're doing day in and day out. And, and I really applaud you. Well, thank you. That means the world to me coming from you. Um, thank you for everything you've, you've done, the impact that you've had on, on me from knowing you. Um, but even before I knew you existed, you had impact on, on me and so many others. And that's, that's just amazing. And folks listening, 
you you have something so deep and wonderful inside of you and you have that that impact too you can reach out to others and take that time to process the fear there's been a lot of really fantastic quotes in this in this piece um we'll see you next time when the screen goes off don't forget we're real human beings and we're out here and we really do care about you grace filled work uh When Elliot said that to me, I felt it deeply. I know that there are so many of us in children's media who care deeply about the children and their adults on the other side of the screen, of the podcast, of whatever you happen to be working on. Think about that that term, grace-filled work, as as you connect and Thanks so much again to Elliot Daly and Fred Rogers and Margaret McFarland and all of the mentors that came before us. Who are you going to help 